Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. This episode of my podcast is about a woman who had many different names. Called me Margaretha the day I was born. She was best known as Matahari, which in the Malaysian language means the sun, or literally, the eye of the day. But her real name was Margareta Zella. Circuses and palaces, a hundred names I've borne, from the bell of the epoch to the eye of the storm. If anybody asks, I name myself after the sun. She was a Dutch schoolteacher who got married and moved to the East Indies and then fled her abusive marriage to become an exotic dancer in the top salons in Paris in the early 20th century. To the East Indies and warm, warm sun. At the end of her life, she was accused of being a spy for the Germans in the First World War by the French and was actually executed by a French firing squad for espionage. And in some ways, Matahari is the best known of the 13 women that I've written songs about. Movies have been made about her, and she's said to have inspired many classic femme fatale characters. But one of the things that I find interesting about her is that nobody really knew the real her, not even in her own lifetime. To find out more about Matahari and her legacy, I talked to the film historian, Pamela Hutchinson. Hi, Pamela. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. How are you today? I'm very well. Excellent news. Ready for a nitty-gritty discussion of Matahari? I mean, I've never been more ready. Okay, excellent. Well, let's begin. If you could tell uh, our listeners who you are and what you do and, and what you're bringing to the table today. I'm a film critic, but more specifically, I'm a film historian. So that means that I look at the history of film and I also look at the kind of industrial and cultural and wit that films come sure. from. And I specialise a lot in silent film and, of course, right. the history of women in film, which I think is one of the reasons why I'm here to yes. talk about excellent. the way that Matahari has been portrayed. Yes, I'm hoping to learn many things. One of the things, uh, of the selection of people that I've written songs about on this record, Matahari is probably the best known name. My diving off point was idly one day, was wondering what her real name was. And um, it turns out her name was Margareta Zeller, and she was Dutch. Um, And uh, that was surprising to me because she's generally, I think, French, people would say. Some kind of exotic. She sort of claimed or was given many, many cultural identities. Yeah, Yeah. right. uh, But but my association with her was Paris, I think, Uh, and the First World War. So I think in going through her story, the thing that... It sort of grabbed me and fascinated me and, and led to writing a song. You know, I went down what we call a Wikipedia hole. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, Lost <laughs> for hours and hours and hours. But she had many, many different names uh, throughout her life. And uh, obviously, Margareta Zeller is her birth name. Uh, she was a school teacher, sort of middle class family, I think, or low middle class family, um, who was sort of bored and sort of unfulfilled, perhaps. Uh, and she answered a newspaper advert. For a husband. For yeah. a husband. I yeah. mean, it's which was a thing, apparently. <laughs> and yeah, ended up ended up in Indonesia. Yeah, which was a big mistake. Yes, right, because he was his name was McLeod. I think yeah. he had sort of pretensions to an aristocratic title because she became known as Lady McLeod. Um, and he was an alcoholic who beat yeah. her. I and mean, yeah. she was extremely unhappy. And they yeah. had a terrible tragedy with their children, obviously. They had oh, right, two children yeah. and 
the children you know, got terribly sick when they were young and the, right. the little boy died. Right. And the, the daughter survived, but uh, it's quite a mystery as to exactly what was wrong. They claimed that maybe the nanny had poisoned the children. Right. But it's possibly that it was uh, because the parents both had syphilis. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, um, OK. So, yeah, there's sort of this early tragedy in sure. her married life. But so for a time, she, she's Lady McLeod and living in Indonesia. Basically, she got interested in uh, Malaysian dance. Mm. Um, I think I've, I get the impression because she needed an escape yeah, psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. See, to continue the story, so she learns uh, Malaysian dance and she assumes the name Matahari, uh, which means Eye of the Day, which is a ritualistic way of referring to the sun. And then uh, somehow or other ends up back in Paris where she causes a sensation. Mm. She arrives and starts uh, and begins to dance. And um, I've read people saying that she was quite good. Definitely um, provocative. Yeah. I mean, it's quite sexualized. Incredibly. Although some people say that she was stripping down, uh, but stripping down to a body stocking. Oh, okay. Which I quite admire her for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about tricking the audience. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But she, yeah, she's uh, there's nudity involved, and, and there's, there's sex is heavy in the air. But I, I, I did read there were some reviewers I think sort of were under the impression that she was a bit of a kind of cultural tourist, should we say, mm-hmm. and was sort of she was getting away with it because nobody was familiar with what might constitute actual Malaysian dance. You know, she, she was sort of like succeeding because of the ignorance of her audience. But I, I don't know uh, how true that is. And of course, there's, I mean, the large theme in all of this is is uh, Sexism, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, and obviously she is exploiting the fact that people want to look at semi-naked women and perhaps sure. they feel they can do that um, if it's someone from a different culture. People don't have right. the same boundaries and proprieties that they would have. Yes. If they thought she was a middle-class Dutch woman, they might right. feel less, <laughs> you know, you know, less welcome to yeah, look, sure. to sexualise her in that way. Yeah. So I mean, did, did she cl- claim to be Malaysian at this point in time, do you I, think? I think she claimed a lot of things. But, you know, really, when you're on stage, people are only really interested sure. in your stage persona. Yeah. That's what she selling and you know what's a suggestion in one forum might be more explicit in another absolutely and you know everybody likes to flirt with something a little bit dangerous and you know you wonder when you read the reviews of Matahari dancing how much the reviewer is embellishing it or hiding sure you know we can never quite be certain what went on right because I mean to to refer to your main discipline I mean she she exists just before they might have made film of her I suppose I mean, it could have been possible that someone would make a film of her. There, yeah. may, there may have been film taken that's been lost. You know, um, right. they say 80% of all silent film is lost. So. Oh, that's a tragedy. W- one of these days, one of these days, can you imagine if we uncovered some footage from a Paris nightclub? Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be from a nightclub. It would have been taken to well, a studio. But, but then, so, but then that, that also, that raises the interesting thing because she, she becomes very kind of like high society quite quickly, mm. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. You know, she, she's a smash. Yeah. It was a time, the Belle Epoque, when people felt that they were very sure. modern and they were accepting and open-minded. Yeah. And so why not have this exotic dancer as part of your elite club as in your yeah. salons? You know, Salons, yeah. So yeah. Some, quite a lot of them are private performances, as it were. Yeah. Well. I mean, there's a cachet to having a person like that at your yeah. event or your gathering. And wouldn't you want her at your party? I, 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 mean, I absolutely <laughs> would want her at my party. I, absolutely. When people <laughs> talk about their sort of dream dinner party. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I think, you know, there was a certain sort of fluidity about that kind of society sure. at that time. Because, well, this is, this is another thing. There's... There's a debate, I think, about... Um, I think she was often accused of being effectively a courtesan mm. and of actually sleeping with some of her more famous uh, fans mm. and patrons. I'm not entirely sure whether how much evidence that she actually did there is. Yeah, I mean, you never know exactly what happens. Um, I think in some of her letters she refers to things like, you know, I, I did some things that I'm not 
proud of. You know, I think right. we can think, we can look at the glamorous photographs and like, to sure. be fair, there are so many glamorous photographs yes. in Matahari and we can hear the word courtesan and you, you get a certain connotation. But yeah. I think at some time she sometimes did something she needed to sure. get by. You know, we call it kind of right. the survival. And, you know, she worked, uh, you know, she worked as an artist model before she went on the stage and, mm. and then she's on the stage and these are the kind of jobs that people had these connotations with you know that they sure. would assume that if a woman is there to be looked at then she's there to be taken in another way and certainly when the dancing career slightly goes on the slide yeah sort of before the war broke out she had found herself liaising in one form or another uh with both french military people and german military people which unfortunately after 1914 turns out to have been a bad idea yeah yeah that's the kind of thing and you know um we know what she was accused of. She was accused of spying. Yes. I mean, and there's definitely sort of evidence, I think, that she was approached by the Germans in particular. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. But we don't know whether she actually followed through. Sure. She was certainly, she was accused of being, this is the last name of the, mm. that she sort of assumed, well, well yeah. was given, shall we yeah. say, uh, was H21. She was Agent H21. So unromantic. Um, I know, I know. It's such a come down from Matahari. But I think, I, I get the feeling that she, I mean, she's, well, she's definitely a scapegoat, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. Because the, the crucial event is the, is the Battle of Verdun, mm. at which the French army is like, completely decimated and ground the meat grinder they called it and uh, so many people have died and the french army actually i think i'm right in saying did actually mutiny in 1916 um and uh and and they sort of hushed it up um and they were desperate for other things uh, first of all other other reasons why the war was going badly uh, other than the fact that you know people were mutinying on the front and secondly something else to put in the papers mm-hmm. and from i was reading that there were moments where people were trying to warn her that bad things were coming yeah. I mean, you can, you do sympathise with her so much. You can imagine this sort of glorious existence in Europe before the war where the right. international boundaries didn't seem so serious. Sure. And suddenly the fact that she has this, what we would consider glamorous, you know, well-travelled lifestyle and lovers in different countries suddenly becomes something that's incredibly, you know, going to condemn her. And yeah, I was, well, I was reading, you know, people, people kind of said, um, you know, sort of said, came to her and said, you know, you're in trouble. And, and I think I think she didn't take it quite as seriously as perhaps she should have done. Yeah. And I think there were opportunities for her to have gone to a neutral, to Switzerland, yeah. let's say, or wherever, uh, which she didn't take. Um, and she ends up getting arrested. Um, and I think I think a pretty summary military trial, I think I'm right saying. Yeah, um, so she, I think she was arrested in February and right. uh, she was, uh, she was uh, on trial and then she was executed in the summer. So it all takes place over quite a short period. Yeah. And yet there's n- the evidence against her, the physical evidence against her, did seem to be lacking. Sure. There's a lot of interrogation. There are times when she may have admitted to something, but whether that was because of the interrogation, sure. we don't know. No. What yeah. you have is this sort of someone to pin the blame on, and someone Absolutely. who's very eye-catching. Well, and, and indeed quite famous. Yeah, very. You famous. know, it's. I mean, I'm, I was sort of trying to think of an equivalent, but it's it's not a million miles away from us deciding that Taylor Swift was a spy during a war. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, like, exactly. and, uh, and and accusing her of being a foreign agent. Um, and if you think about it, I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to compare something so trivial to a war, but. You know, when someone like Taylor Swift, when people sort of suggest that their politics might not be in the right place or they sure. could have done something or yeah. they, they should have stood up for a cause or not. The backlash that we get now, we see that we really would quite enjoy blaming oh, yes. a public figure Absolutely. rather than just talking about the general mass of people yeah. who do or do not vote in a certain way. Of course. And, and similarly with Matahari, I mean, in a way, it's, it's a tragedy that she's remembered for mostly, I think, for the way that she died. Yeah. Um, and, and, and indeed, talking of tragedy, the thing that I read, which I, I put into the song because it broke my heart, is that having been this hugely celebrated figure, nobody collected her body. No. She was shot in a field and her body was put in the cells for someone to come and claim and no one did. 
Yeah, I mean, her family were abroad, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that sort of the way that there is no one to stand up for you. And right. the idea that you die in front of a firing squad, but you die completely alone. And uh, she hadn't made a sure. will. I mean, yeah. you know, which possibly suggests she didn't think she was going to die. She left sure. her daughter sort of in a very bad situation. Right. Yeah. I do. I did read she did. She refused a blindfold. Yeah. This is one of the most famous and absolutely fascinating things about Matt Hari. I mean, the idea that she was so brave that she would face her death in, sure. you know, but also there's something, you know, like I was talking earlier about the idea of a woman being there to be looked at. The fact that at the end of her life, she looked back. Yeah. You know, she looked back at the men who were accusing her or not yeah. technically accusing her, obviously. Sure, you don't blame gonna, the firing squad. But I mean, they're still yeah. going to pull the triggers. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's, it's an incredibly um, sort of eye-catching moment in history. We have it from an eyewitness, whether we believe him or not. I'm sorry. This is part of the Matahari legend. Sure. And it's, you see it in a lot of the films and it's completely devastating. Well, so that brings us then to the afterlife of, of Margaret Zeller, of Matahari, because, um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there have been many films. Well, there, there have been, first, let's begin with there have been many films about her specifically. Yeah. Um, and it's starting quite early on, I think, after the war, am I right in saying? Yeah. The first proper Matahari film was in 1927. It was okay. a German film. But already before then, there had been so many Matahari stories in the press and yeah. so on. And there were Matahari type spy stories. There was a British one called A Woman Redeemed, right. which is a nice British title <laughs> for it. Uh, and there was... A, <laughs> and also um, one by the Irish director Rex Ingram, a really beautiful film called Mare Nostrum, which is based on a novel that was written just in 1920, just okay. very soon after she died. Sure. One of the things I was thinking about when she died is 1917, and what we think about in culture at that time in the cinema is the vamp, Thedabara, you know. Sure. If you look at the film, that uh, the famous lost film of Thedabara that came out just a few months after Matahari died, she's wearing that kind of breastplate that uh, Matahari died in when mm. she plays Cleopatra. She right. looks like Matahari. And yeah. I think there becomes a kind of cross-identification of the Matahari type and the vamp. Sure. So very quickly, very quickly. It, it, we're moving into the realm of myth and legend and far away from the facts of Margaret Zeller's actual life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that image of Greta Garbo as Matahari is the archetypal one. Mm. You know, it's mad to say, but if I think of Matahari, I'm probably thinking of a picture of Greta Garbo before I'm actually thinking of a picture of Matahari on some levels. That's how culture works. And you know, yeah. it's interesting that, you know, they could have made her look like anything. You couldn't you can change any diesel in a biopic, and we know that many of the Matahari films do. But that particular look, the the Indonesian look, sure. the the headdress and the breastplate is it it definitely resonates to all the key Absolutely. versions. She is the, uh, if I may, uh, may, may use the expression, she's the femme fatale. Absolutely. Yeah, which then becomes, moving yet further away from any kind of historical reality, becomes a, a Hollywood trope, shall we say. Absolutely. I think, And, you know, the, the femme fatale uh, uh, has its origins in the vamp. In exactly yeah, sure. the time when Matahari was, you know, notorious and she died. And the femme fatale is... Uh, so appropriately for what we're talking about is not just the dangerous, seductress, kind of the betraying sexual woman, but also she is the unknowable woman. The idea is that the more you get to know right. the femme fatale, you get drawn into your own doom, which is obviously what happens when you fall in love with a spy. Yeah, if well, she is a spy. If she was a spy, yeah. yeah. But there's a, there's a funny sort of... Um, uh, serendipity or appropriateness almost I want to say to the way that this kind of myth has grown out because I, I feel like one of the things I find interesting going back to the actual historical individual mm. that we're talking about is that um, until the, it, the wheels came off she played a very deft game yeah. of, of shifting identities mm -hmm. I think you know and uh, as we were talking about earlier about survival that kind of thing you know she presented to the world different identities 
to forward her own case and to, to survive and to make a living and to, to make art. Let's call it, I mean, let's remember yeah. that she's a dancer. It's art. She's yeah. making art. I, I feel like part of the reason we don't know very much about her is because she was trying to hide, not hide, but like, you know, it wasn't in her interest to be known. I mean, yeah, there are, there are two really interesting aspects of that for me. One is that, you know, if she can reinvent herself, then she can obviously be the mistress of disguise. It's so easy to believe that she could sure. die. But the other thing is, I think... When we talk about reinvention, it's obviously something that we celebrate and it's quite exciting to us, yeah. you know. But when you think about it as a woman and when you think about you know, think about someone like Matahari as feminist historians, you know, reinvention and renaming is sort of the lot of women. You know, no one expected her to keep her birth name. No one expected her to die as Margarita Zella. You would sure. expect her to die under a different name, to take her husband's name, to take another husband's name, yeah. you know. So it's one of those things. If your name is not your own, yeah. Then, you know, what Matahari did, she asserted the right to choose her own name. And that's right. that's the thing that I think is um, for feminist historians, for women looking at the story, you know, particularly empowering and exciting, the idea of making yourself. Yeah, right. Well, that, that was the point that it's, it's mm-hmm. the sort of kiss off line of the song, as it were, is that she got to kind of of all of the different shifting identities and names. And as we've discussed, ones that were given to her uh, and ones that she adopted herself, the one that she I I have no evidence to back this assertion up whatsoever, but it's a song. It's art. It's a song. Uh, it's an artistic license. Um, you know, I like to think that at that moment in time, the the identity that she created for herself in a time of crisis that then enabled her to live a completely different life would probably be the one that she would have been most attached to. If you can hide behind a stage name and a sort of slightly baffling backstory, I mean, who would want everyone to know all your business? You know, sure. I think about her her daughter sort of working away quietly, being a kindergarten teacher when her mother's being executed by a firing squad for being. A spy, yeah. and you think, you know, doesn't everyone have a right to a private life and to a sure. real history? You know? Well, I'd imagine her daughter would have been quite happy at that moment in time that she wasn't being yeah. famously having the same name or whatever. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. It's, yourself. it's a saving grace. I mean, there's something very kind of liberating about having a kind of fake stage identity. I don't know, you're going yeah. to tell me you're really called Norbert or something, but no, you know. Well, <laughs> 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 My real name is actually Francis. Oh, okay. Uh, but, I, I mean, think, Francis to Frank, that's, that's, you know. I think that's, we'll let you off, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, and indeed, to go down this road, I, it was a name given to me. Oh. Uh, I was at school one day, and one of the bigger boys just announced that he was calling me Frank from now on, and oh. I didn't really have any say in the matter. Oh. Uh, but it, it's, it's even quicker to say, yeah, shorter to is. write. <laughs> yeah. I think you know. I, I think you understand what Matahari was trying to I do, do I, at I some feel... deeper level. <laughs> Yes, I really identify with her pain because of that. Yeah, um, uh, no, I mean that 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 raises an interesting point actually. So um, within the broader context of the of the album that I made, uh, there are some of the songs that are kind of third person reportage, should we say? Mm. And uh, there are one or two that are second person, as it were, sort of an mm. address. And this is me writing in the first person uh, from the point of view of a woman. And uh, I'm aware that this is playing with fire, should we say? Possibly. I mean, you know, it sort of it seemed to me that if I was going to inhabit the character and and really say what I wanted to say that saying it in the third person to really function mm. as a piece of writing. But uh, but I, I, I hope it hasn't come off badly. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things is, you know, if you're inhabiting the role of Matt Hari, the whole point is that so many other people sure. have done. I mean, you know, yeah. and even she would say, you know, once you, I think once you put your name on your stage act, you're sort of saying this is a separate entity to yeah. myself. I mean... So we, we could even say there are two completely different histories here. There's Matahari, sure. there's Margarita Zeller. They're completely different people. Um, I think you'll be allowed. I, I, I don't want to be quite so pretentious as to say that the purpose of this record is didactic, is to teach people about these people mm. that you should know about. But it is to kind of shed light and to spread information, this kind of thing. And in a funny way, like, I guess people will know more about Matahari after listening to this podcast and listening to this song, but, like, not everything. No, there's and, so and, much and, to find out. Yeah, and but in a funny way, like, they shouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think she would want everybody to know everything. 
I mean, there's something, I mean, it's interesting, as you say, the more you read, the more you find out, you know, how sure. tall she was and how many children she had and what age she was when she died. And, you know, for example, nobody thinks that the woman, the Matahari, who was executed by firing squad at that time, no one thinks of that woman as a 41-year-old mother of two from Holland. Right. It's not what people... Yeah, it's, right. And, and, you know... In one way, it's kind of deflating of this marvellous idea of the Matahari myth, but I think we can just uh, treat them as two different people in a way and sure. explore them. But I think you also have to understand that her myth has its own life. Um, so I think it, it's fantastic to to delve into it, um, but we'll always, even if we debunk everything we think we know about Matahari, we'll still have Matahari. She'll still be with us, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, yeah, the, the, the Matahari type, as you say, yeah, it, it endures. Feminism. And indeed, that will develop over time because I think you mentioned earlier that there was possibly new information coming out. Yeah, a few years ago, people found some letters, and right. you know, and there is, you know, hopefully her files will be declassified at some point. I don't. I mean, you know, would have thought so. A hundred years after the event, <laughs> exactly. So you know, it is possible that one day we'll find out whether someone did frame her. My understanding of the case would be that I don't think you'll find out definitive evidence whether or not she spied, but we might yeah. know whether there was any kind of conspiracy to frame her. So we've mentioned, uh, I think the word feminism has come <laughs> up in our conversation so far. And and I feel that like Matahari is a figure that within that context, within that discussion, could be in, uh, interpreted in several different ways. Uh, I was wondering what your take on that was. I think it's interesting that I've never heard Matahari discussed really as a feminist icon, but like sure. any notable woman, you know, we have a feminist reading of her. And I think one of the things I was uh, that I was interested in when I was looking up uh, reading this week in the 1960s, which we think of as sort of a good time for feminism, you know, uh, the sort of birth of the Women's Live movement, that's when people started talking more about a Matahari type. Right. And that's when that became a thing. There was a 1960s uh, Matahari film with Jean Moreau, Right, French film. Mm-hmm. Um, she played very glamorous, looks just like uh, Greta Garbo. Sure. Um, but since then, what the other thing that happened in the 1960s, the sort of female spy trope that we have, I hesitate to mention, is the Bond girl, which is sort of everything that Matahari is watered down to the nth degree, <laughs> sort of homeopathic Matahari. Um, now, we're going to have to be careful at this point in the discussion because Matt Nazir, who plays keyboards in The Sleeping Souls, my regular touring band, uh, is the world's single greatest James Bond fan ever. And any bad words about anything to do with James Bond will result in me receiving a beating the next time I get on the tour bus. So well, with that disclaimer <laughs> in the bag. I do know what you mean. I mean, the spy who loved me. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at each individual Bond girl in detail. I'm sure your, your sure. colleague will. Uh, has done already. Has done. And there are, there's a lot of variation and the type has changed. But sure. We still have this idea of the Bond girl as someone who's quite disposable. And I found that an interesting yeah. kind of watering down of the Matahari myth. You know, rather than her being the centre of her own story, that <clears> she is someone who's sort of dependent on a man's story, yeah. who sort of comes in and out of his life, maybe more or less important. But we have the glamour, we have the sex appeal, but we don't have the sort of centrality of Matahari. Maybe there is space within our the world of film and culture more broadly for a more empowered version of this story to be told of, of somebody, uh, female espionage, where they, they're not an adjunct and a sidekick and, a, and somebody who then ends up getting sprayed gold and, yeah. and whatever else it might be. Yeah. Um, someone that's uh, deeper than a myth, as you said, sure. you know, someone who's both Matahari and Margarita. Like that's the, that's yeah. the ideal, a real heroine, a real protagonist. Yeah. Totally. Well, I mean, I sort of to, to bring this this around now to the song. Um, the tone for the song I was trying to strike is a very softly played song. It's a, probably the, the most softly sung and played song that I've released in my career. And and I wanted to kind of get a tone of kind of like slightly bitter defiance in there. Do you know what I mean? Of just kind of like because I feel like life threw some pretty unpleasant cards at Margarita Zella. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
you know, and, and that moment, as we discussed, of, of her taking off the blind or refusing the blindfold and her execution, of just kind of being like, screw you. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's like, you think I'm a spy, you think I did this. It's like, screw all of you. But it's like, I wanted to present that artistically in a way that wasn't kind of like loud and heavy because, that, you know, she was obviously incontestably defeated at that moment, you know? Yeah. And I think that, that's important. I think it's interesting, you know, all the things that we do and don't know about her, if we can remember her in the spirit of defiance and independence, yeah. I think that's really valuable. I don't. She doesn't come across to me as somebody who is interested in self-pity. And, uh, and I like that idea of her staring down the soldiers. Called me Margaretha the day I was born The day I died the soldiers called me age 21 And circuses and palaces a hundred names I've borne From the bell at the epoch to the eye of the storm if anybody asks, I name myself after the sun. I was a teacher when I was young, but I ran away from home to the East Indies and warm, warm sun. To what a man I did not know. He called me Lady McLeod But the times did not allow My complaints as drinking dragged him down So in dancing peace I found They called me a tourist when I began to dance An amateur and courtesan when I came to France On stages and in salons I held my tongue I was never owned by any man or known by anyone if anybody asks, I name myself after the sun I never cared much for their war I had seen men fight before Seen the sickness in their spree I would dance for them no more they came to take me away From the Hotel Champs-Élysées Told the soldiers I'd nothing to say They wouldn't have listened anyway Too many men had died and somebody had They set a day for my dying day But as I stood in that killing field Refusing a blindfold Staring down the soldiers 
and the hatred of the world. I felt the warmth of the Malay sun, and I smiled for them all. They all thought they had the best of me. Not one of them could say what I was called. Just before the darkness came, I whispered my real name. I am Mater Hari, I of the day. In the cells, my body lay unclaimed. After the sun, if anybody asks, I name myself after the sun. So there it is. Uh, that's my song, Eye of the Day. Thank you very much for listening, Pamela. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure having you on, and I've learned so much about uh, everything today. Um, one, one of my sort of um, both hopes and fears for this whole project that we're engaged in right now is that to write songs about history and then get somebody in who tells you that you've made an error, uh, which is sort of terrifying to me. Uh, there wasn't an error. I, you, I, did, I, I either didn't know or had forgotten about her children, I have yeah. to say. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't put anything in the song that sort of contradicted that. No, I think I think it's quite a haunting story, but I really I think I've been just thinking about as you were saying, you know, Matahari and mm. culture. The more I think about her, the more I think of her as a really central figure in sure. popular imagination around that time. So, yeah. thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about that. Well, and indeed, and thank you for fleshing it out and making it a, a, a broader story. And uh, hopefully, our listeners uh, have also learned more about Matahari. Although, as we were saying earlier, not too much, not too much, not too much. Uh, but thank you very much for being in. Thank you. So there you have it. And it was a real joy and a pleasure and an honour to speak to Pamela about Matahari and her story. And one of the things I enjoyed most about the conversation is despite all the different bits of history that we got into, I still feel like there's a kernel at the heart of Matahari's story. We still don't fully know and understand her. And I think that's how she would have wanted it to be. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe and review wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out if you do that. So please do click subscribe and leave a glowing review should you wish to do that. You can find my song about Matahari, Eye of the Day, wherever you get your music from. And my album, No Man's Land, is available for pre-order. There are another three episodes out already about Sister Rosetta Tharp, Dora Hand and The Graveyard of the Outcast Dead. Please do go back and have a listen if you haven't already. And come back for the next episode, which is about the legend of a so-called witch who lived in one of my favourite bits of London, Camden Town, in the 17th century. And she was called Ginny Bingham. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Hayley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production was done by Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Mile Recordings and something else. If anybody asks, I name myself after the sun. If anybody asks, I name myself after the sun.
anybody else, name myself after the sun.